Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello, and welcome to Mark My Words. This is Mark Homer. I've got Mark Stokes here on the podcast with me today. Mark has got an enviable reputation within commercial conversion. Um, He's been taking office buildings, he's been converting them um, for some time now, and uh, he started moving into projects that require planning permission and also um, projects where he's sort of building out new builds as well. Um, big, big experience in the, in the corporate world previous, but uh, I'm not going to go into that too much. I'm going to let him tell us about who he is and, uh, and and what he's doing. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Hello. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you very much for having me on. So Mark, tell us, um, give us a bit more detail about your, you know, give us a potted history. What have you done? How did you get to where you are now and what do you want to do in the future? Yeah, sure. Ooh, where do I start? Um, so I, I retired from corporate life about two and a half years ago in May 2015. Prior to that, I had 25, nearly 26 years uh, running companies around the world. Um, But if I take you back, I was born, uh, we sat here in Peterborough, I was born and bred in Boston, just down the road. Um, My career in in construction and global infrastructure started with my degree at Sheffield City Polytechnic at the time. So from that degree in construction, um, I joined uh, my first of only two employers. So I've worked with two employers over 26 years, um, had many different roles with each, each of them. The first employer was uh, US-based, and it was a really interesting time. And I, you know, I love business, love how the markets move. And it was when BT were losing their monopoly um, and Oftel were, were challenging them. Um, so I worked for a large US contractor which had a license to put in telecoms. Um, and we put in swathes of fiber optic cable networks uh, into a lot of blue chip institutions up in, and into down. Into the UK? Into the UK, then, that, in, uh, then across EMEA. Was that Bell Cable Media or something like that? Um, that was WorldCom, which oh, okay. later MFS and later became WorldCom. Yeah, um, so we use them for credit card merchant, merchant services. Is that similar? Is that the same company? No, no, it's a similar okay. company. They, okay. They're now branded as Verizon in this ah, country. Yes, I've heard of that. Yeah, um, American, yeah. So, in fact, when they went into uh, uh, Chapter 11 um, back in 2001, 2002, that's when I took a, a turn in my career. So, yeah, I, uh, I ran you know, large swathes of global infrastructure for them, in, firstly in the UK, then across EMEA. And I was asked to run the Asia Pacific operations based out of uh, Sydney. So that gave me a, uh, a pretty thorough view. I'd had a view of the States and Europe, but then Japan, Singapore, uh, Australasia, um, and all the, the cultures and different business mm. uh, tones in, in the area. Um, but more importantly, what I saw was a maturing market. I saw a market that went from startup, which was absolutely fo- focused on capital infrastructure. It was a race to who got the capital in the ground first. Manholes, large data centers. I mean, a data center deployment might be anything from 50 million to 500 million um, in some of the larger capital cities. So it was a target race. And of course, you had the sales teams who were selling services to a lot of the blue chips, a lot of the investment banks, uh, high street banks. So following the capital deployment, then it became a race for top line revenue. 
then it became a race to stabilise cost. And then last, which should have been first, was, uh, was cash flow. Um, so we saw you know, a real wave of, of, of emotion as the, as the business went through the 90s. Um, so as well as running um, these, these areas, I've always been quite entrepreneurial. Um, and I did my, my first startup um, under the umbrella of the large US corporate. Um, and that was looking at parallel infrastructure with the mobile base station. Uh, providers, so with Vodafone and um, uh, and, and the like, Cellnet as it was then, and Mercury Personal it. Communications. Yeah. So we'd put a lot of the towers on, and oh, in fact, right. one of our commercial developments has got a Vodafone tower on at the moment. So it's interesting to see how the code powers have, have changed since the 90s. Then we had the uh, the dot com bust, um, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, I moved to my second uh, career where we approached a, a well-known UK PLC and we created a brand new organisation. And that was looking at design, build and operative data centres um, for a lot of the blue chip organisations. And we successfully um, grew that and then sold our stake back um, to the PLC in 2007. I'd love to tell you that was great timing, but that was purely coincidental, um, but proved very favourable for ourselves. And from then, I got involved in a lot of um, lot of deal structuring, reorganisation. Uh, that's when I started becoming non-executive director as well, and looked at a number of uh, different challenges, M and A. We looked at some power stations, so a lot along the corporate infrastructure and global infrastructure theme. So yeah, wide as you said, a, a wide range of, of business acumen, but also a real passion to to really push myself as hard as I possibly could. So you got involved or interested in taking office buildings and converting them into residential. I, I presume part of that will have been the, the permitted development rights and the change in the sort of regulatory and, and planning environment that was um, that, that, that arrived as a, an opportunity in that space. What got you into that and why did you get so interested? OK, great question. With all that global infrastructure, we clearly need offices. Um, and I'd seen how offices had changed. I've been involved in about 3 million square foot of office deployment around the world to date. Um, I've seen how that's been incredibly cellular back in the 90s. Then it became more open plan, then more collaborative working. Um, and then we looked at you know, home working as, as an employer at the time. So having left corporate life, we were able to see with, and by that time, permitted development had come in. This was post-2013. Um, so we could see how repurposing of aging infrastructure, regeneration of, of environments and repurposing old stock. Um, but more to the point, uh, having four young children as well, you know, I, I fear for the younger generation becoming on the uh, getting on the housing ladder. So it was the migration of those two points that looked at how we could take a multi-generational uh, perspective in property, how we could force incredible amounts of appreciation in at the front end of a business model rather than just accepting a, a market variance o over time. Um, and, uh, you know, that's how we established the, the, the model. So you spotted this. When did you start, roughly, with the commercial conversions? Um, around about 2015. Okay. Um, so PD had been there a couple of years, something like that. So you'd spotted that this opportunity was there, and um, you, you started taking these, these buildings and then converting them into apartments? 
Yes. Yeah. And then, I mean, just sort of run us through that. What, what do you do with them? You, you, you convert them. What's the spec like? What's your location? What sort yeah. of numbers do you do? So we've, we've got a balanced portfolio. So we've, we've got many other things in there. We've got some single lets. We've got HMOs. But specifically on, on commercial conversions, we're looking for somewhere between 6,000 and, and 35,000 square feet. That would typically be our, our model. Um, it doesn't have to be B1A. Um, because we, we make our money on how we structure the deal as we go in. Um, but quite a lot of them are, are, are intensification of, of permitted development, I have to say. So the, the product that we're providing, and I think you have to be incredibly focused on the end product, um, are one-bed apartments, and they're to meet the needs of the, the young professional marketplace. So ideally, first-time buyers, um, we're looking for uh, help to buy, and in fact, uh, remind me about help to buy. We've had real interesting dynamics in that over the last couple of weeks. Um, but I see that stimulus package and, and working in um, with BT's uh, losing their monopoly and with energy recently with rocks. You know, I've seen how government stimulus packages, if adopted at the right time in the model, can be um, highly catalytic. But if your model relies on them, it can also be a, a death knoll as well. So it can suddenly timing. fall off a cliff, or it can, it can go super turbo when they when they open uh, open timing. the gate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so one bed apartments. What we like about those is their pockets of liquidity. Yeah, you can carve off a one bed apartment. You can sell it. We had one um, uh, development recently, which uh, had planning permission for a fifteen bed HMO. Yeah. What's, if the market shifts or if our economic position shifts, you know, what's the market for a 15-bed HMO? Well, it will be the great sway the property investors will be looking for a great deal, and that's probably not the, the exit I'd be prepared to, to look at. Whereas if I've got a, a number of one-bed apartments, then quite easy to title split those and sell within a four to six-week, eight-week period to you know, any number of marketplaces or pop them out on an FRI lease. You know, there's so many different avenues there. That's what we like about them. So in terms of sort of spec, you know, your, what sort of floors are you putting down? What sort of kitchens are you putting in? What do these units look like? Yeah, the, these units are, are pretty highly spec, to be honest. Um, they've got uh, hardwood or granite surfaces, um, German engineered kitchens, um, German, German manufactured uh, fittings, um, hardwood, wooden hardwood floors. Um, they're to sell to, to a premium market. Yeah, and, um, and size-wise, you know, what's a one-bed? Um, so one-bed uh, at its lowest would be 34, 30, 34 and a half square yeah. metres. What do you go up to? Um, about 43, 44, and 45 you, square metres. Sort of averaging meters. 38, 39. Yeah, and, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a nice size, that is. I like that. I mean, I, I like the sort of, you know, I try to go to for about 39, 40, something like that, and um, I'm just doing one at the moment, and the planning department have come back because it's not PD and they have got control. And they've said, well, we don't have any minimum space standards in this town, but we're going to just tell you nothing below 40, thanks. And a few of yours are below 40, so can you increase the sizes, please? <laughs> Which um, is a bit annoying, but, um, you know, hey-ho. They have a high opinion of their uh, their, their um, uh, expertise sometimes, don't they? And it's always worth a, a challenge, I've found. 
Yeah, I mean, it just we were just having a chat about that before we started this podcast. It, planning is so much down to which officer gets hold of, of your case. I mean, I do the same thing over and over again in the same town, same types of buildings, looking at the same town plan and, you know, working within the same rules. But each one I do, I get a completely different result, just dependent on which planning officer picks it up. And do you know what? I can almost tell what kind of ride I'm going to get when the application goes in and it comes back and I, I see who it's been allocated to. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's one or two individuals, I just uh, put my head in my hands and I just know it's going to take a long time. I usually get there in the end. but We, we put in a pre-application um, down in the home counties, uh, almost a year to the date, actually. Um, and we put the pre-app in. It took them a 28-day pre-app process. Um, three weeks later, they came back. Well, we inquired as to the, the status. Where's it gone? Where's the pre-app gone? Have you, oh, have you got a response? Somewhere in the black hole in thing. In the ether, oh, yeah. Incredible. So um, they said, uh, well, the, the pre-app's um, missing one key vital part. And uh, they said, um, I said, what's that? They said the, uh, the pre-app for highways. They wanted a separate pre-app for highways. Right. On the same I've scheme. never done that, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, oh, and incidentally... Were you going to tell us? That would be a yeah. separate fee. As oh, well. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Were you going yeah. to tell us? Yeah. <laughs> um, so our pre-app separate process... Fee. So two pre-apps and two fees. Yeah, right. three, three yeah. and a half months, the 28-day process took. Yes. And I think therein lies the, the uncertainty of life. Mm. Um, and we can grow a, a great sense of entitlement there, or actually we can determine our own destiny, and we'd prefer to do that by ring fencing our risk, controlling our risk in a measured way, how we place conditional offers and structure at the front end. And then we've got minimum capital outlay um, and uh, you know, maximum control and impact from a very early stage. Interesting. So you're then developing these, you do some of them with investors and you do sort of some of them on, on your own. You've, you've got a couple of business partners. Um, so what sort of people are you working with when you do these projects? Okay, so I'm very fortunate that since 2002, um, Phil, Nigel and Mike, uh, our fellow board directors, um, we've been board directors of the same organisations um, consistently for, for all those 16, 17 years. So, you know, when, when things get tough, you know, and, and they have over those 15 years, we've been through some economic cycles. Um, and you're in the trenches, you know, you've got your bayonet on and your, your tin hat on. You, know, you need to know how people react under pressure, what they enjoy doing. So we know each other extraordinarily well. So that, so that bodes well. Typical structuring, we'll be, um, we'll be entering with, uh, with senior debt. Um, we not, tend not to be using second charge lending, mezzanine or, or senior stretched. So we're going with senior. pressure on, doesn't it? I mean, I've done all that in the past and, do you know, it's, it's, it's just the... A lot of it is time, isn't it? Have you got the time to get the money back to these people? Um, have you got the, t the hours in the day to get the deal done that quickly? And what happens when things go wrong? It just creates a lot of stress. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it does. Yeah. I think there's a there's a right there's a right cocktail of uh, of um, a funding mix, um, and it just hasn't been right for us. I, I dare say it will be right at some stage in the future. I've heard people say, you know, giving up equity to private investors is expensive. Well, actually, I don't really see it as giving up equity. You know, I think that's a, a fair exchange of value. Um, we, in many cases, we've known our private investors for a long time. They're, they're um, very focused, quite often they're time poor. They're heavily involved in 
um, nationwide, if not international businesses, and they, they value their time um, immensely. Um, and they're often very private individuals as well. So we will tend to bring a senior debt, which will probably be somewhere between 78 and 82, 83%. And the, the, the remaining will be through private capital. Um, typically that will be into the business, well, it can be a number of ways, but typically that will be in the business at uh, anything from 0% upwards as a, a fixed interest loan, and then a variable profit share at the back end. So or, not 20% downwards? No, no. <laughs> You're a clever man here. Um, so, um, but I think that raises an interesting point. Well, everyone gets a, Everyone wants sort of they want high interest and the biggest share and sort well, of yeah. I, I find that um, n- normally it starts with a with a coffee and yeah. and the the find question what, they, what, what they're yeah. looking for. What does great look different? Like. Yeah. yeah. What does great look like to you yeah. and Everybody's got a different sense of purpose, different requirement. Some are absolutely incredibly focused. I mean, obviously, we determine whether they're sophisticated investors, first and foremost, um, making sure probity, compliance and governance is top of the agenda. Um, and they're the conversations I, I really enjoy. Once we've got the comp- through the compliance um, and that relationship starts to build, find typically a uh, parties bringing private capital uh, to the table probably quite cautious initially but gradually as that relationship grows as they see the milestones being hit as maybe money is is, is returned at the end of a successful development um, then more money might flow mm. and also their their friendship book opens um, but those friendships have been curated for 20 years they're certainly not going to be you know, introducing uh, us to their friends until we've proven ourselves, and I fully respect that. Yeah, and you, you wouldn't expect them to, I suppose. So you're, unlike me, you're operating uh, across different areas of the country, um, so you're seeing a lot of different markets. So how are you seeing the markets differ across the country? And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, how, how, how is that sort of offering challenges or opportunities to your business? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. Yeah, um, certainly how how we're seeing it, and also how we're reacting to it. Um, so as we as we left corporate life two and a half years ago, um, most of us, well, all four of us were three out of the four of us were were born and bred in the north. Um, so we know that area pretty well. So we've invested heavily across that M62 corridor, which has been great. You know, it's high yielding, um, but it's it's pretty pretty flat. Um, we're finding sales are quite an interesting market, um, changing demographics. Um, but Mrs. Stokes also reminded me that I left corporate life to spend more time with her and, and the family as well. And it's a long way up from, I live just outside Guildford in Surrey. Mm. It's a long way up from uh, from there. In fact, I should know, because I've been up there this morning uh, to Hull, you know, a four hour journey. Um, so we're seeing the market is is very different a lot more volatility in the south whether that be growth or whether that be the the london cooling off and the softening which is gradually spreading out into the home counties so are you seeing sort of home counties some areas drop some go sideways some go up so we're seeing um most things inside of the m25 have, have cooled off quite significantly yeah in a london anything up to high teens you know reduction 
and probably ebbing out to you know five or ten percent reduction out to the M25. Yeah. We don't invest inside the M25 as a rule. It's generally the the Polo Mint around London, really, um, outside the M25 and up to a maximum 60-minute commute um, out of the main so line. So somewhere like London Peter Rail Hub. Yeah, well, it's, uh, with the, with the um, HS2 and mm. and some of the high speed. Nottingham. Yeah, we pr- we probably wouldn't go quite that far. So yeah. we're taking the high speed, so Eurostar and and those links out of that yeah. equation. In effect, it's the home counties. It, it, it's Surrey, Hertfordshire, Berkshire, um, Surrey. Uh, we're not in all of those areas yet. We've, we, we tend to allocate, although each development is purchased in a, in a brand new clean title SPV, mm. um, we tend to draw them together. Um, and just purely from a managerial point of view, so we can allocate the right amount of resources, time and, and accounting into like a portfolio. Yeah, It's a portfolio in nothing other than managerial terms. Oh, okay. It has no accounting caliber. Um, so we have a, a nice portfolio there in, in Essex at the moment. It helps us with our concentration risk in, in a number of areas. So that's concentration risk for, uh, for ourselves um, in terms of our investment and our time. Um, obviously, density and concentration of the product in the, in the market. Yeah. Um, also, um, we want relationships with the with the debt markets, senior debt markets, um, and we're starting to get maybe one, two, three with with individual lenders, um, and we're finding the value of relationships with commercial developments. I mean, we just we just love commercial finance. It, it's uh, you can have a sensible conversation. Oh, it's um, so much easier than buy to let, isn't it? I mean, I've yeah. heard for years people say to me, "Oh, you know, commercial finance." It's, so I remember years ago, a guy who used, did a lot around here actually, but he probably didn't want me to do such big deals. He says, oh, you've got to be well hung to do commercial, you know, and all that. And I, sort of at the time it put me off a bit, and I think he was referring to me, um, not not being able to do it. Um, but then after a while I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to do my first one. And actually I found over a period of time, I got to build a relationship with a real person in a real bank. And... All of those silly little things that come along that don't meet a buy-to-let lender's criteria um, or, or often if you're, I find if you're doing commercial loans through a broker, that can be the case as well. You know, you're, you're one step removed. It, it's more sort of computer says yes, computer says no, these are the rules. Um, it's just not where I want to be. And I find when you get a relationship running with a bank and they sort of know you, a lot of the rules go out the window. Mm. Certainly, if the deal makes sense, they just do it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, life becomes a lot easier and, with and, that sort of lending. And to go and see them as yeah, well. You've got um, to meet them. You've got to know them and, and yeah. keep doing deals with them. I, yeah. I went, went to see the CEO of, of one of our funders who's funding two developments at the moment. Generally, their policy is they will only do one at a time mm. with a new client. And we were a new client for them. We, we hadn't done any development finance with them. Um, but went to see them. They'd seen the first two uh, payment drawdowns. Monitoring surveyor had been there. You know, we'd passed the acid test. You know, we'd got into the deal and started started operating. Um, and uh, they were keen to go to the second one. Um, went for the second one, and they're now keen to look at the third one as well. And the first one is hasn't even drawn to a close um, with them. So I want to be talking to a set of white eyes, yeah, not to uh, a computer. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's 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 definitely the way forward, and the rates come down, yeah. and the the terms get better, and your life just becomes easier. Yeah, and we we build a 
a rule book, if you like, a manual of learning. Um, I can't say it's anything that's ring bound, but um, it's really in our development analyzer where I think an incredibly important word is, is, is anticipation. We need to anticipate and, and hence walk a mile in all parties' shoes um, to really understand what they, what they want, but more importantly, why. If I can understand that, I can get my head around it. I can anticipate what they want and when. Um, I mean, personal guarantees is, a, is, is always an interesting one. Almost certainly they're going to be asked for. They are almost certainly asked for last thing mm -hmm. in the development process. A load of paperwork. Oh, you've yeah. got to go to the solicitors and yeah. we're going to read every word out to you. And, and yeah. uh, oh, well, now we need someone else to witness it. And yeah. Well, with the latest AML and KYC checks, we had this two weeks ago. Um, I was in London with Nigel. We were both sat down there about to do our own individual phone calls with the independent solicitor to give us advice. So we're signing piece, parent, uh, sorry, personal guarantees. Um, uh, with our eyes wide open and the independent solicitor said sorry we can't continue this conversation um because we can't see you well we've already agreed we can have a phone call no it needs to be a skype i need to see you on a skype and i need to have your certified id in front of me so i know that i'm giving independent advice to the person on the passport who I should be <laughs> it, it just gets ridiculous doesn't it i um we we went to our solicitors to to to, to get a um a pg done and um, we started the conversation, and then the solicitor said something similar, like, um, right, now, Mark, you're going to have to leave the room because uh, I'm going to give advice to Rob on his own, and you're going next door to see my colleague. And, of course, two separate meetings had to go on, and um, he sort of read a few words off. I, I signed uh, after, you know, I'd already read it all. Uh, but for Rob, the guy sat down and he read he, he read the whole document word by word to to Rob, um, with his finger pointing on every word, um, and I, I'm not sure Rob had, I hadn't said that much about why we were going because Rob doesn't he's not usually that interested he's just like you get on with it where do I need to go I'll, as long as you drive me I'll do it, um, <laughs> and of course he get, he shot out of the room and he goes am I giving a personal guarantee for two point five million. Like that. And I just went, yeah, yeah, that's that's what that's what we're here for. Um, and he, he sort of went, right, oh, okay, fine. Because I think this guy sort of, yeah. So he went back in and, um, and signed it. But the whole thing was bizarre, yeah. But it does give you an idea, doesn't it, of uh, the tightening of AML and yeah, It has, it's changed. KYC. Yeah. And, and I, actually, I think it's a great thing, you know, it'll drive the, more of a purity into the market. Yeah, well, people need to know what they're getting themselves into, don't yeah. they? Yeah. But as long as we know that up front, so that's that power of anticipation and just building our our scrutiny and checklist at the very earliest stages so we're not sideswiped by that in the last week of a, a development. As usual. Hmm. So lots, lot, lots of elements of this are changing um, and this marketplace is evolving. What do you see is going to be the biggest change over the, the next say, one to three years within this marketplace? We're watching the funding markets very carefully at the moment some of um, the potential private uh, capital, private investors out there, uh, funds are abroad. Um, so repatriation of those funds, what the policy is, whether they're, they're resident overseas, um, certainly the AML checks as well. Um, so, but, but more to the point on the, on the debt markets, where interest rates are going to go, the uncertainty of, of the economy, um, you know, Brexit, we've now got a date fix for the Brexit plan. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Yeah, whether you know, that gets kicked down the road again. 
Yeah, that can. Just kick, does... kick, kick the can down yeah. the road, don't they? They love that old chestnut, yeah. So we spend a lot of time with, with the funders and we've got a fantastic broker as well, right in the heart of, uh, of, of London, um, who's very close and very proactive as well. So we have a number of, a number of uh, you know, uh, sounding boards out there in, in the marketplace. Um, but we also remain very humble as well. It's a model that works very well for us at the moment. If there's any any shift, um, we see a lot of agility uh, in the product that we're creating. We're generally buy, develop, sell at the moment. 2018 strategies start to feed in maybe one in two, one in three developments on a buy, refi, and buy, develop, refi, and hold. Um, we like long-term hold on commercial property. Um, part of that final severing of the umbilical cord of corporate life was to was to claim some degree of control on our pensions um, and create some some greater uh, value long term. So we we uh, took our pensions, transferred them into a into a SaaS. Um, that SaaS, in fact, has just sold its first commercial property. We we bought that in cash uh, some time ago. Um, we legally completed on that one um, a few days ago. Um, so you know we're positioned with a number of own funding, a number of different funding instruments ourselves. We can use different funding markets, uh, whether it be debt, um, uh, equity, private capital, home or overseas. So we're just trying to create ourselves a, a broader stance to give ourselves, ourselves maximum resilience. And after all, that's the market we used to work in, data centres, where 99.99 resilience was never good enough because nobody wanted the 0.01% chance the lights would go off. Mm. And I feel the same okay. way about my family and my business partner's family's future. So you're sort of dealing a lot with high net worth investors, some of them are overseas. How do you see that market changing in terms of, you know, what they're looking to invest in? Obviously, it's currency related. Brexit plays a big part in that. Will it get sorted over the next two thousand in two thousand and eighteen? Well, probably not finally, but if some certainty returns, and I expect it probably will do this next year, um, then I, I suspect GDP growth will, you know, it will move us up the G seven table, um, and then that will probably strengthen the currency. That may change things there. So, how how do you see all that planning out? Yeah, um, so we don't have any overseas investors as we sit at the moment. We've generally takes quite a long time for us to us to get comfortable with our private investors um, and uh, so there's a few maturing in the pipeline um, so I'm probably not qualified to give a, a robust answer to that if I'm honest at this stage. Okay so we'll we'll move on to the next the next question then so um, you touched on it earlier and um, I suspect you wanted to say more about it help to buy um, you know it mm. specifically works on your low-end units I know um, we're going to be using on a development that, that we're just involved in at the moment. Uh, quite a few of the other guys that are within Progressive are benefiting from it. Um, tell us, tell us how it, how you benefit from help to buy. Yeah, and quite rightly so. This, um, I mean, it's fantastic stimulus from from the government. Um, we always apply right at the front end of every development. We've done our market research. Our product first and foremost is aligned into that space. You know, it's set there for the uh, first-time buyer or those you know progressing up the uh, up the ladder, the early stages of the ladder. 
Um, so the application goes in at the very early stages. We've got the documents, the contracts in front of us during the exchange process. As soon as we're legally complete, we're in there with an application. Timing generally we're finding isn't too bad. You know, within a couple of months, um, we're, we're getting feedback. Um, and that can be anywhere from 0% to 100% of the apartments. Depends on the postcode, the concentration in the area uh, of help to buy, the, their understanding and perception of need in the marketplace as well. Um, so a recent example, one in Essex, um, we got help to buy uh, on seven of 16 units. And we, we very carefully uh, dovetailed this into the sales process. And that sales process to the market, we did quite a lot of soft market testing. We used our, our estate, we always use an estate agent in the local area, although we always retain full rights and control on the, on the brochure and documentation that we, that we use. Because um, that's, that's one of our, our assets. Um, so you, you got seven out of the 16 on help to buy. On help to Why buy. not 16? Um, because of their deployment of funds in the area at that time. Oh, right. So the 2017 budget in that particular uh, example were expended in that area. So we we wanted to, uh, and we, we tend to do this, we wanted to test the market in that particular area. 16 is not a great deal of units uh, in any, any particular area, so we never had any concerns on concentration risk. But what we wanted to, to have is the appropriate price point in the market. And you can do all the research you like, but why risk it with 16? So we, we went with, with seven. Um, we put seven on the market. Six were helped to buy and one was, was non-helped to buy. Um, and uh, they, we, we had a special VIP launch on a, a Saturday morning with the, with the agents. Um, and all seven um, took reservations in two hours. Brilliant. And they were all significantly above our GDV. So you know, really positive and, and healthy. Yeah. And that has now given us a chance to reflect on the, on the final nine. So clearly help to buy had been a, a phenomenal stimulus in that particular area. And this might be something that uh, uh, the, the community as a whole could, could reflect on. Um, we decided to go back into help to buy and say, what a great success. Mm. Can we have an uplift? Yeah. And they gave us uplift on, on everything. Brilliant. The remaining nine. So we did get 100% help to yeah, buy, yeah. but we've got Not it in two round. stages. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes being a little bit bold, but presenting evidence. Mm. So we'd created the evidence, we then presented the evidence that's clearly a demand, clearly a need. Um, it's not lost on me that we're also in a new calendar year as well, or coming into a new calendar year. So we'll be releasing in January. But again, that stimulus package, it won't be with us forever. I mean, there's, there's already been rumours of, will it be 2020? Will it be pulled? Will it be extended? Um, but uh, as long as we've got, you know, an 18, to, yeah, 18 to 24 month runway on most yeah. developments, that's fine. That yeah. works for us. Yeah, well, it works for me as well. Um, I, uh, I think 18 to 24 months, I think that's long enough. I, yeah, where, who knows where we are in the cycle. We're definitely in the second half. Um, you know, are we going to go into recession in 2018? I think it's probably unlikely, but um, we've got a few years left, perhaps, but it's very difficult to put your finger on what that is. So mitigating against that, maybe not doing quite as many developments when you feel like you're towards the end of the cycle and also like you're doing small units that you can rent if suddenly you can't sell them because the market falls off a cliff has got to be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So why are the opportunities from sort of making money from commercial conversions always focused around or, or largely are focused around permitted development? Um, do you find that that is still the sort of best area to be in or is maybe B8 better, you know, storage and distribution because there are some permitted development rights there? Yeah, um, so the, the, path most, the path most traveled isn't necessarily the one that we, we tend to follow. Um, our permitted developments, we have done um, PD from scratch. Quite often the PD is through intensified means as well, where there's existing permitted development. Um, and we've rolled that through with a further brand new application and that's worked very well for us. Right at the heart and, and where we take 90% of, of all our opportunities are with the commercial agents. The commercial agents for us, um, they are the ones who understand, I mean we always walk a mile in, in their model, they have a fixed overhead of variable income and they want to back a party who's prepared to get over the finishing line yeah. and not being ditched at the altar. Yeah. Um, so, so we work very extensively with the commercial agents and we keep them informed. They're not like a bit of chewing gum on the end of our finger that we're trying to get rid of. Um, you know, they're, they're an indentured part of our team, you know, part of our DNA, and we treat them as such, over-communicating all the way. Um, so that relationship leads us, as long as they understand our economic criteria and equation, they are often bringing us different types of deals. So we're very active in, in looking at um, long-term commercial property hold as commercial property. Um, and that might be something that is currently vacant in a distressed position um, with a tenant or, or you know, physical condition. Um, so we're looking at those um, in conjunction with, with planning as well. So mixed use schemes, and I know you've got a very large mixed scheme at the moment so um, you know we're on similar wavelengths there although yours is a, a lot larger but as we can as we can grow and aggregate those long term that's something that 2018 will hold a, a great deal of promise and um, we will take a, a blended portfolio risk across what what Equa Group does um, so it's not all PD um, generally if there is something on right move it, it, it won't be for us um, we're seeing a lot of overcompeting on PD and yeah. prices being driven high. They've and, gone berserk around here, and it just—it's um, headless chicken scenario. It is. You don't want to yeah. be there. And I, I use that, that phrase: um, "We're only competing with what we're capable of." And we're talking beforehand using that example of a, a development down south where offers were over three million. We bid four point three million. Somebody else bid five point five million. Mm. No, it wasn't that they overbid. It, you know, they hadn't got their numbers wrong. It was just different. Yeah. They were funding in cash. They were prepared to hold for as long as it took to get four extra stories. And ours was an intensified PD scheme. Um, so, you know, it's not being too personal, having enough in your pipeline so that you become, you know, reasonably unemotional about each development. So whether that be PD, intensifying PD, long-term commercial hold, land, um, uh, and um, land with, uh, with with planning, but we do like to protect ourselves with a conditionality. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because everyone I talk to who operates in our space, because we're we're doing similar stuff, they've all got their own little sort of spin on it, or their own little niche, um, or th something they do over and over. And really, 
you know, lots of people think, well, there's one size fits all. There must be a best way. There must be the way to do it. And yes, there are often, you know, parts of least resistance and, and things that we that are common between us. But actually you have to play to your strengths and what you enjoy doing. And um, and, and that's what sort of creates your flavor and, and allows you to create that that little niche that then makes you more successful than your competitors, which is ultimately how you win. Yeah. Yeah, I've um, also one valuable skill or, or experience that I brought from corporate life um, is the ability to, to, I suppose, understand what the problem is behind any situation. And that might be walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. So I used to be a corporate troubleshooter around the world for, um, for a previous organisation. And if you can ask the right questions, you you know you almost parachuted into a combat zone as it as it feels, where people are either clammed up, don't want to talk to you, or or in denial. You know to to create that environment where people will open up and and feel a certain amount of protection to be able to disclose information to enable a win-win rather than an adversarial, um, you know, handbags at two paces kind of approach to go into a, a development and. I'm really pleased on the relationships that we have with our with our vendors post purchase. We continue, and it's you know probably something for 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 the community for those that maybe aren't doing this. You know, once you've purchased a, a, a commercial property, these people generally might have more. They might have funds. A lot of those commercial um, property owners that that we meet, um, they don't like debt in their lives. They've got a long-term indentured view of debt. They are unencumbered, um, which is quite alien to, to, to us in, in the... Well, it's commercial zone, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, the thing is with lots of commercial buildings, you know, the, the tenant stays for 10 or 15 years and, you know, they're on, they're on a long lease. But at the end of the lease, sometimes they leave and then you get this big void period and... You can't fund it when it's at the end of the lease because the bank won't do it. So, of course, when you come along, a lot of the time there is no debt. Um, and often those boys don't want to fund it because they're worried about having a big void in the empty property rates. Yeah. Um, so it's just a different mindset, isn't it? Because we come from the res residential space where it's it's always debt because, well, of course you can pay the debt. You just put another tenant in. That's, that's the mentality. Yeah. Um, but they can't necessarily always do that. Yeah, and also they've got... They've got so many other competing uh, priorities. Um, we've got one opportunity at the moment um, where the building has been vacant for over 10 years. Perfect example. And it, and it is a perfect building as well, lovely building. But the, the, the vendors are just too busy on other stuff. What, it's to a, put a tenant in? Or... It's a minor distraction. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's an itch that they just yeah. haven't had time to scratch yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, that's taken a decade, but... I mean, they've been busy creating enormous, enormous swathes of value elsewhere. Mm. Um, so 10 years of business rates, it's a lot to you and I. Um, but not everybody thinks in, in those type of proportions. No. Um, so I th think we can potentially bring some colour and imagination to that scenario and, and create, create a win-win. Equally, lots of these buildings are owned by big funds, institutions, the people dealing with them, you know, they don't have an interest in it necessarily. Yeah, it may be their job, but often their job is just covering their arse. Yeah. It, it's not, um, you know, 
they want to put a tenant in, but they'll only accept the best tenant because they don't want to get, you know, break the rules or, or get into trouble or the fund doesn't allow it. So they'd yeah. rather just pay the empty property rates and leave it empty. Yeah. And, and we do see this from time to time where the analytics aren't on a property by property basis. They'll be on a, yeah. um, a an average yeah. fund basis. So it all looks all right, getting yield and that's it. Yeah. yeah. The one or two anomalies there yeah. just get lost in the rounding. Yeah. <laughs> we like to operate in that area. <laughs> well, I know you like to maximise everything, Mark, and I'm not sure that would that would sit very well with you. It wouldn't me. I mean, it doesn't matter how much money I'm generating. I'd, I still have it with, I don't know, gas and electric. I'd, I wake oh, up in the middle absolutely. of the night and think, I've oh, got three of those properties, and we've not dealt with the gas for three years, and I just know we're getting yeah. charged one and a half times what we should be. And it's probably not loads of money, but I send an email to my PA and just say, can, can you just deal with that? Because it's really annoying me. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm. So that we can really provide a quite a robust solution for those people and just operate in that, that bottom 5% or bottom quartile of their portfolio. Yeah. And, uh, what are we, bottom feeders? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are those little sort of those, um, I don't know, those little things that sort of eat things, don't they? And, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so on that note, Mark, it's been... Um, <laughs> 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 it's been emotional but it's, uh, it's that creating that creating value and if you can create value for all those stakeholders yeah. leave something on the table for for everybody and not treat each deal necessarily in isolation our professional team our funders our private investors our advice team you know there's got to be something in it for everybody yeah. and it's it's a long hard lonely journey if yeah. you're reinventing the wheel every time mm. And that's, that's what I, I really value with, with our team. Mark, I really appreciate you giving me your time today. You've got a lot of knowledge. Um, I've learned a few things myself, which um, I always enjoy doing. So, Mark, if people are interested in finding out more about you, how do they get hold of you? Well, probably the, probably the easiest way is to find me on Facebook and, and drop me a message. Um, I'm told I need to spend more time on Instagram, but I'm a, a bit naive at that at the moment. But I try. So, uh, yeah, Facebook message me is probably best. Or, uh, or if you want to drop me an email, it's mark.stokes at equagroup.co.uk. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity, Mark. Thank you very much. That has been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. <laughs> <laughs>